please open your Bibles to the New Testament, Philippians chapter 1. We have been preaching, Redeemer's been preaching through numbers. We're going to take a break this week. Two years. We have been in Athens now for two years, and I wanted to say thank you. This last week I was reflecting on two of the aspects and reasons why uh, we are enjoying ourselves here. And the two aspects are that we have the privilege of working with the most amazing students at Georgia that desire to use their gifts, that desire to live for Christ's kingdom, and it's very, very, very humbling. It's also a wonderful privilege to begin to share life with Redeemer Church and the relationships, the memories that we've already built over the last two years. So thank you very much um, for taking care of us and for the encouragement, and uh, we look forward to being here for quite a long time. Unity. Uh, It's not an easy thing. And uh, it was something that was a significant issue and challenge for the church at Philippi. If you know anything about this very first church in Europe, you would know that the three foundational members from Acts 16 are a wealthy professional woman named Lydia who is a dealer in purple, a blue-collar Philippian jailer who is radically, dramatically uh, converted through Paul in, in an earthquake. And then you have this slave girl who had no status, no cultural um, relationships. And yet she also was dramatically changed by an encounter with Christ. These are the three members that were foundational to this church at Philippi. Can you get three more different people? Look around the room this morning. You have the college students in the back, a little up front. We have uh, teachers, professors, working class people, people that uh, don't have jobs, stay-at-home moms, people that are trying to be moms and also work. We have all different kinds of people. Some live in Oconee County. Some people live in Clark County. Different challenges, different histories, different socioeconomic levels. And yet, I want to suggest that as we take our break from numbers this morning, I hope that all of us can receive encouragement this week. Don't look around the room and only see differences. That's the whole point of the church. That the strongest bonds that we have are the blood of Christ. Not how much money is in your wallet or what clothes you have or what street you live on or whether you're in college or whether you're an adult or whether you have kids or whether you're married. But we desperately all need Jesus. So I hope to encourage you this morning from Philippians 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 26. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence this morning, I pray that, Lord, that whatever the challenges that we are bringing in this morning, whatever the doubts, whatever things are plaguing us this morning, that you would help us see who you say you are. That you would help us see who you say we are in Jesus. That you would help us see your priorities for our life and for our family and for this community that you care about. Lord, we need you to break into our hearts and our minds. We need you to animate our lives as we respond to the unbelievable grace that we have received from you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. What was I thinking? This was my first inclination when I looked at some pictures of me from middle school and high school. Did my parents not love me? Why did they let me have my hair look like that? Um, Why did they let me pose like that for my senior pictures? Just remember graduating seniors as you're going off to college. Those pictures are permanent. So be aware of that. What was I thinking? I I remember even, I love to go go, uh, through my parents' pictures when I go back to Memphis to visit. And I will look at these pictures of my dad and I also say, Dad, what were you thinking? I mean, seriously, the permed hair? Really? And then he decided to go through the the Billy Graham, blow your hair straight back look with lots of volume. And then he appropriately accompanied that with a mustache. And I said, Dad, what were you thinking? And he goes, well, I just decided to start something new. Make a new name for myself. I said, well, you certainly did that. Mission accomplished. We look at these pictures from our past. Uh, We look at... Uh, the ways that we would have styled our hair, the, the clothes that, that we would have worn. Maybe you look back at your college pictures, your high school pictures. And sometimes it's just something as fun as, you know what, I'm going to start a new fashion. Sometimes I'm just going to, you know, start something new. But I think there's actually, at times, something much deeper than that. I remember when I went up to St. Louis in the Midwest. <laughs> My wife never lets me live this down. I, I went through a gelling your hair phase. And it was a disaster. If you gel your hair, that's fantastic. And you look awesome. It didn't work for me. Because I wanted so much to make a new name for myself. College is behind me. I'm a big boy now. I'm in grad school. I'm training to be a minister. And so I'm going to fit in with the Midwestern culture around me, wear lots of black, and gel my hair. And I think that's funny. But at the same time, I think all of us recognize that we are very skilled at times in reinventing ourselves. That when we graduate from high school, 
and we go off to college, we suddenly have, we look completely different. Now we're aficionado of hipster music and we, we buy clothes from a thrift store and all these kind of things. And your high school friends are like, what happened to you? You're not even the same person. Or you graduate from college and now you have to justify yourself and be grown up so you start wearing suits and you start talking different, all these things. I really think behind this is that we are not comfortable in our own skin. So we have to continually reinvent ourselves. There's a lot of ways you could talk about this. I'm going to use the word this morning, identity. That we are always on a quest, friends, to reinvent ourselves, to find an identity that's sure. And I believe that Paul this morning gives us some very clear, encouraging words about identity. He even says that the identity that we have in Jesus Christ is a cause for joy. How many times does he say this? He says, what then, only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And he repeats it in case we, we, we missed it. Yes, I will rejoice. The identity that he's suggesting is a cause for joy. So what exactly is this identity that he suggests? Well, first question I want to ask all of us this morning, and I'm asking myself these same questions. Why do we need a new identity? For Paul, he just blazes off into what this new identity looks like and the changes that it brings. I think it might be helpful for us this morning to ask an opening question. Why do we need a new identity in the first place? What's so bad about the one that we have right now? I had Todd read Genesis 1 this morning, verses 26 through 31, for this reason. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 describe the way that life was supposed to be. Perfect harmony, perfect symmetry between God and man, between people and communities, between even um, the world and ourselves, and even our own self-concept, how we relate to ourselves. This was the way the world was supposed to be. And notice in Genesis 1 it says... God stepped back and said, this is very good. God was made, or God created us in his own image. We have to begin there because that helps us understand just how catastrophic Genesis 3 really was. That Genesis 3 created a complete unraveling and fragmentation of all of those relationships. That now, I want to suggest to you, we don't know ourselves We don't know ourselves because our identities are fragmented. We go through life trying to piece together meaning. We have these interests. We hang out with these people. We do this, we do that. All trying to create some sense of meaning of who we are. Who am I? To actually become comfortable in our own skin. Think about when you went to college. Think about the ways that you saw that as pushing the reset button on the Xbox. I'm going to start all over again. Think about when you graduated from college. I'm going to start all over again. When you get married, I'm going to start all over again. And then I'm going to have my first kid. I'm going to start all over again. Maybe it'll change when I have two kids, three kids, four kids. Maybe it'll change when I become an officer in the church. Maybe it'll change when I finish graduate school. Reset over and over and over and over again because we're trying to piece together meaning and identity, hoping that if we do enough, Surely we'll be complete. Surely we'll be comfortable in our own skin. 
earlier this fall, um, I had the privilege of cleaning out my gutters at my house. So I was on the roof of my house, cleaning out all the leaves. And John Huss, my seven-year-old, is over to the side, and he's a little bit of a wisecracker, as those of you who have met him know. And, and uh, he sees me on the roof, he sees me working hard, and he holds out his arms and he goes, Daddy, jump, I'll catch you. And I said, no, John Huss, I'm not going to do that. He goes, why? I said, because I will crush you. Oh, okay. And then he disappeared. Friends, I believe that when we are piecing together activities and even church activities and interests and relationships and the way that we dress and the way that we hide behind our personalities and all of these things, we are hoping that that identity will hold up under our body weight in such a way that what would happen if I were to jump on John Huss besides Child Protective Services being called? We know that would happen. But what would happen? I would crush John Huss under the weight of, of who I am. I want to suggest to you the reason why we need a better identity, a a firmer identity, is because all of your hopes and dreams, your brokenness, what happened to you in high school, what happened to you last night, all that you're living for cannot support, cannot hold up to that kind of weight. Do you see this, friends? Where are the places... This morning that you need to be reminded of where your true identity lies. For some of you here this morning that are, that are non-Christians, we are so thankful that you have decided to, to join us this morning for worship. You must understand, this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's not that Jesus sort of latches on to who we already are and where we're going in life. But it's something much more significant. That now Jesus has actually become our identity. Our, the reason why we get out of bed in the morning. Everything. And so friends, if you are a non-Christian here this morning, you need to really take that seriously. This is not a, this is not a small thing. Everything that you do in life is a response of who Jesus is and what he has done. So why do we need a new identity? We need a new identity because... The things that we live for cannot support our hopes and our dreams and our brokenness. I ran across an interesting article about the actress Kirsten Dunst. Many of you remember her from Star, from Star Wars. Spider-Man. I'm a big cultural, cultural aficionado up here. She was in Spider-Man. And listen to what she says about her identity. In 2008, she checked into a rehab center in Utah to be treated for crippling depression. Things started unraveling in 2006 when critics tore apart Marie Antoinette, which starred Dunst as the French queen. This is what she says about what it meant to be rejected. The movie was so personal to me. It was like everyone was stomping on my heart. More flops followed, as did a breakup with her boyfriend. But she found herself unable to talk about her pain. And she says this, Because of what I do for a living, I had to keep giving. It can dissolve you. I think what Kirsten Dunst is describing is something that we can all relate to. 
why does rejection hurt so bad when you don't get the job that you wanted, when she says no to you, when your marriage is not going in the direction that you want, your kids are not doing what you want them to do, your life is not panning out, you thought things were going to get better. Why is that? Because those things that we have placed our identity in are beginning to dissolve. We don't even know who we are anymore. Friends, what, is the re- what, what rejection are you facing this morning? Where are the places in your life where if somebody mentions an aspect of your past or your future or whatever happened last summer, you just flip the switch and you are angry? What causes you to be angry? Anger, many times, is a response to your identity being blocked. You didn't get what you wanted. You didn't get the respect that you believe you're entitled to. You didn't get the the approval that you think that you're entitled to. Because your identity is wrapped up in that. What happens when you don't get what you want? Friends, this is the beginnings of where relational breakdowns take place between parents and their children between spouses. Because here's what happens. We have these hopes and dreams that every single one of you have this morning that you have written out. What happens five, ten years into your marriage or with your relationship with your kids and it's not painting out? Do you know what happens? I talk with people about this. Is you turn to the person and say, I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. Or I don't want to have a relationship with you anymore, child, because you're not doing, you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain. You're not becoming who I thought you would be. Do you see how easy it is for us to put our identity in our marriage? To put our identity in our family? To put our identity in our kids? To put our identity in our jobs? Friends, I'm here to tell you, we must find our identity in something that is more sure. And now we're ready to ask the question, what is the new identity that we see In this passage, what is that new identity? Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. For Paul, his entire life on earth, whether he is sitting in prison, which is exactly where he is when he's writing this letter, or whether he's free, his entire life is defined by Jesus Christ. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. That is what defines him. That is where his identity is. Even if he must die for being a Christian, it is better because he will be together with Christ face to face. Why is Jesus such a big deal for Paul? If you're a non-Christian this morning, you have to be asking yourself, why would he be so hardcore about this? I mean, that is intense. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, it is intense. Because Paul sees things as a life or death issue. Paul knew all the things that he had done before. That he was a murderer. That he was so zealous for the law that he even persecuted others. That even behind all of this religious, upright behavior, he was self-righteous. His goodness was a barrier to understanding the compassion and love of Jesus. Paul understood that. He understood all the things that he had done. He knew that well, but Paul knew even better the forgiveness that he had received. 
Paul's identity was safe and sound because it was not grounded in his failures, nor was it grounded in his performance. It was grounded in the performance of Jesus Christ. We're going to stay in Philippians 1, but I want you to now open your Bibles to Galatians. And I want you to see a parallel passage to what Paul is talking about here. He expounds upon this theme of identity in Galatians 2.20. Friends, this is staggering. Listen to what God's Word says to you this morning. Paul, speaking of himself, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The life I now live is because I know that he loves me and died for me. For Paul, understanding his identity in Christ was a tremendous source of comfort. Comfort. He understood that the life that he is now living as a church planner, a pastor, a Christian, is literally not his life. He does not own it anymore. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. But such comfort, friends, always comes at a cost. The comfort that we receive comes at a cost. It requires all of us to lay down all of our personas, to lay down all of our identities. Pull out your bulletin. And I want you to to turn to the very first page. I put a quote on here that I want all of us to read. This is from C.S. Lewis. And he speaks, he's speaking on this very theme of the costliness of the gospel. He says this, The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want... You, I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. Notice what he says. Even as you lay it all down, he says, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Lay everything down. But but why? For Paul, it was worth it. For C.S. Lewis, it was worth it. For Christians here, it's worth it. Because we actually receive true life. This is the root of all of our problems, is that we really cannot believe that we are so radically loved by Jesus Christ in this regard. We, we, We just can't believe we're too easily satisfied, as Lewis says in other places. It's too good to be true, so we will just settle for cheap knockoffs. I'll be satisfied for a moment. But friends, for Paul, he's saying, for me to live is Christ. 
to die is gain. That just as surely as Jesus Christ died on the cross, friends, you died to sin with Him. You died with Him on the cross. Just as sure as Christ rose from the dead, conquering death, you rose with Him. This is the important theological construction of union with Christ. We are His body. We are united to Him, the head. Friends, He is our identity. He, he is what we live for, what we die for in everything. So how do we get connected to this reality? That's how we would define it. How do we get hooked up and connected to this? The first thing I want to say is community. It's actually implied in the context of Philippians. This entire book is not just written to individual Christians. It's written to a specific church in Europe in the town of Philippi. To a local church. The context is this idea that the church is a trusting, honest, open community where people can admit their marital struggles. People can admit that they struggle with parenting. People can admit that they're depressed about, about being jobless or being homeless. They can be honest about their doubts and their fears because it's a community. It's a family. Community is the context for us to understand our identity. The ordinary place for these, for these claims and these ideas to be wrestled with is the church. I love to hear the story of Sheldon Van Auken who was a friend of C.S. Lewis's. And Sheldon Van Auken was very opposed to Christianity because he thought it was anti-intellectual. He thought Christians just weren't very smart. And do you know what really changed Sheldon Van Auken's life? Was just rubbing shoulders in community with C.S. Lewis and his friends. To see that C.S. Lewis was a normal guy. He liked to read books about poetry and literature. He liked to smoke a pipe. He liked to drink a little bit of whiskey. He liked to eat good food. He liked to talk about Jesus. He was normal. He was approachable. And through that community and through those relationships, guess what happened? Sheldon Van Auken became a believer. He began to see that all of his stereotypes were misguided. Community, friends, is the primary context for wrestling with these identity issues. But secondly... This identity that I'm talking about must be received by faith. Some of you guys have grown up in the youth group. You've been catechized. You've been discipled. But you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. You agree with what I'm saying, but you have not, you're not trusting by faith in Jesus. Some of you are college students, and you have grown up with this your whole life. Maybe you've been involved with RUF or Crusade or another ministry here, but you're not really trusting in Jesus. You agree with the theology, but this is not your identity. Some of you, friends, have grown up in Redeemer. You're 30, 40, 50 years old. You, you too were from PCA churches. You too were involved with RUF ministries. You too were involved with other campus ministries. And now you're married and you have kids, but you've not ever put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You agree with the theology. You give me the thumbs up. But this is not your identity. You're living for another identity. Can I give you an illustration that's helped me make sense of this? Years ago, there was a tightrope walker who was famous. And he made bold claims that he was going to walk across these two skyscrapers in New York. 
and throngs of people showed up to watch him because he was a bit of a bit of a character, full of himself. And he walks across and he gets the crowd going and he says, Do you think I can walk across this tightrope to the other side? And the crowd's like, Yes, they're screaming, Yes, you can do this. And of course he does it with ease and he comes right back and he says, Okay, I've got a bicycle now. I'm going to ride this bike across this tightrope. Do you think I can do it? And they're screaming, Yes, yes, of course you can do it. We've seen you do it. And he does it with ease, comes right back, and now he brings out a wheelbarrow. And, he's, and, this, and he says, do you think that I can push this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? Do you believe I can do it? And he's at this point, the, the crowd is going into a frenzy. They're like, yes, absolutely. Then he said, who of you will get in this wheelbarrow and let me push you across? And there were silence. Friends, I believe that that is exactly where we are in the South today. Many of you will cheer and say, Hal, John, Justin, Matt, preach the gospel, boy. Get up there. Yeah. And then when we say, get in the wheelbarrow and let Jesus push your life. Silence. Suddenly, I don't want to talk to him anymore at the football game. Because he might ask me about my marriage. He might ask me about my kids. He might ask me about my weekends. Friends, have you gotten in the wheelbarrow and taken your hands off and trusted the sure hands of Jesus for your life, for your past, for your presence, for your future, for whether whether your kids are going to grow up and become Christians, whether you'll get married one day, whether you ever get out of college, whether you ever graduate from high school, whether you ever... You fill in the blank. When is Jesus going to become your identity? Friends, get in the wheelbarrow and know that you can trust his sure hands. Right? You know that he's at work. You know that his ways are better. You know that every single one of us make a mess of things when we're in control. Friends, you can trust his sure hands. It must be received by faith. And it means that all of those identities that we put forward have to be left on the side. What is the result of this new identity that we see in this passage? Be who you are. If this is your new identity, if this is what defines you, Jesus Christ, Paul is in many ways in this letter and all of his letters saying the same thing. Because of who you are in Jesus, make your decisions. Because you're a new identity in Christ, that changes how you view money. Because you have a new identity in Jesus, that changes how you relate to each other in conflict. Because you have a new identity in Jesus, that changes how you view your weekends. Everything changes. Be who you are. If you are united to Jesus, respond and make your decisions in that regard. Three three things very briefly that talk about these results. I believe that as we understand our new identity, we begin to have an awareness of living for others like Christ did for us. When we understand where our identity is, We begin living for others as Christ did for us. We begin to see that this is what life is all about. This is the the Christian life is about humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, but simply thinking of yourself less often, as C.S. Lewis says. We lose ourselves in serving the needs of others. We, we, We don't even think about our own needs because we're so focused on how can I help others? How can I serve them? How can I give my time, my money? How can I encourage that dear sister who's hurting? How can I go across the room and talk to that person who's been to Redeemer three times and no one's, no one's 
greeted her. It changes how we view people around us. But also it means when we understand our identity in Christ, it means that our lives are about honoring God like Christ honored His Father. Christ's death was so costly, far be it from Paul to lead anyone astray. It was so costly, far be it for us to do anything in this community and how we handle money, what we do on the weekends, how we relate to our kids, for us to do anything, to lead anyone astray. I thought about this. What I most need, and maybe this is what you need too, I need throughout the day to silently pray to myself, God, please help me to honor you in how I study. God, please help me to honor you in how I parent John Huss and Gardner and Eliza Jane. Just silently, God, please help me to honor you when I'm stuck on 316 trying to get to Atlanta and I'm late. Friends, maybe we we just need to say little simple prayers like that. Help me to honor you. And thirdly and lastly, as we understand this new identity, it creates courage to be faithful just as Christ was. Not to be perfect. No No one will be perfect. Only Jesus was. But we are called to be faithful to the proclamation that we've received from Jesus. Jesus was the only one who loved others completely, selflessly, and honored God with an undivided heart. Only Christ was truly courageous and faithful to His Father, even when it cost Him His own life. I want to suggest, friends, that Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived who has ever been comfortable in His own skin. Remember, that's that's what our problem is, right? None of us are comfortable in our own skin. Jesus Christ was the only one who was. He was the only one who was fully integrated and fixed on the will of His Father. Who had true courage to speak the truth in love exactly when it needed to happen. I think this is why it makes passages like Matthew 26 so confusing at times for me. Matthew 26 is where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane agonizing over the lot that is before him, his death. He's agonizing to such a degree that he's sweating drops of blood, right? Well, that doesn't look very courageous, Justin. It doesn't look very courageous for Jesus to be doing that. There's more to it, friends. That Jesus understood on the eve of his own torture and crucifixion, he cries with such despair and weightiness that he's even crying drops of blood. Why is Jesus so disturbed? Because Jesus understood what his death meant. Jesus would not only be stripped of his clothes and his dignity and his friendships with others, but he would receive this humiliating death, taking the form of a servant, fully God, fully man, on the cross so that we would receive an identity that would be unshakable. We lost that, friends, in Genesis 3. We are fragmented. We are a train wreck. And religion is a really good way for us to try to piece together identity. But Jesus came to give us an identity in Him that is unshakable. And it came at the cost of God's own son. He was stripped naked on a cross. 
He received the death that every single one of us should have deserved. The one who perfectly loved others with an undivided heart, perfectly loving God, caring for the poor, never having favoritism. He is the one who was stripped. He was stripped for the ones of us who dishonor him. He was stripped for us every time that we are ashamed to call ourselves a Christian. Friends, Jesus did that for you. Jesus did that for me. That your identity is not wrapped up in whether you live the perfect life, the perfect Christian life. Your identity is found in the fact that Jesus has already lived the perfect life in your place. And that changes us. It changes us into people that for the very first time, we become comfortable in our own skin. We can endure rejection from people at the office. We can hear hard things from our spouse or even our children or the elders in this church out of love and we don't have to be defensive. We don't have to respond with anger because our identity is found in Jesus. Friends, do you know this Savior? Is your identity safe and sound this morning? Do you agree with what I'm hearing, with what I'm saying to you? But have you gotten in and trusted Jesus with your past, with your presence, with your present, with your future? Friends, his track record can be trusted. Go to him. Don't clean yourself up. Stop where you are, even as we go into communion here in just a couple of moments. And in your heart, raise your hands and say, Lord, please renew me. Some of you here this morning aren't Christians, and you need to do that for the very first time. And you need to say, I'm done playing games. I'm done playing PCA religion. And I'm here to make my identity safe and sound in Jesus. Friends, for you, today is the day of salvation. Let's consider these things and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us that is disruptive because we have to see things about ourselves that we would never see otherwise. It's not until our identities and our personas fail us that we realize that we're a mess. Help us see, Lord, that indeed you have come not only to save us and to acquit us, but to put us back together again. To even use this community of broken and beautiful people called Redeemer Presbyterian Church to be a blessing to this community as we are trophies of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts of people that need to know the cleansing love of Christ through the blood of Jesus. And I pray for my friends that have heard this before and need to be renewed and know that I can fight this week because I know Jesus fought for me. Give us that perspective, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.